Section 31 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. Poor Relations. A poor relation is the most irrelevant thing in nature a piece of impertinent correspondency an odious approximation a haunting conscience a preposterous shadow lengthening in the noontide of your prosperity an unwelcome remembrancer a perpetually recurring mortification a drain on your purse a more intolerable dun upon your side a drawback upon success a rebuke to your rising a stain in your blood a blot on your scutcheon a rent in your garment a death's head at your banquet a gathercles pot a mordecai in your gate a lazarus at your door a lion in your path a frog in your chamber a fly in your ointment a mote in your eye, a triumph to your enemy, an apology to your friends, the one thing not needful, the hail in harvest, the ounce of sour in a pound of sweet. He is known by his knock, your heart telleth you, that is Mr. A rap between familiarity and respect that demands and, at the same time, seems to despair of entertainment he entereth smiling and embarrassed he holdeth out his hand to you to shake and draweth it back again he casually looketh in about dinner-time when the table is full he offereth to go away seeing you have company but is induced to stay he filleth a chair and your visitor's two children are accommodated at a side-table he never cometh upon open days when your wife says with some complacency my dear perhaps mr will drop in to-day he remembereth birthdays and professeth he is fortunate to have stumbled upon one he declareth against fish the turbot being small yet suffereth himself to be importuned into a slice against his first resolution he sticketh by the port yet will be prevailed upon to empty the remainder of a glass of claret if a stranger press it upon him he is a puzzle to the servants who are fearful of being too obsequious or not civil enough to him the guests think they have seen him before every one speculateth upon his condition and the most part take him to be a tide-waiter he calleth you by your christian name to imply that his other is the same with your own he is too familiar by half yet you wish he had less diffidence with half the familiarity he might pass for a casual dependent with more boldness he would be in no danger of being taken for what he is he is too humble for a friend yet taketh on him more state than befits a client he is a worse guest than a country tenant inasmuch as he bringeth up no rent yet tis odds from his garb and demeanour that your guests take him for one he is asked to make up one at the whist-table refuseth on the score of poverty and resents being left out when the company breaks up he proffereth to go for a coach and lets the servant go he recollects your grandfather 
and will thrust in some mean and quite unimportant anecdote of the family he knew it when it was not quite so flourishing as he is blessed in seeing it now he reviveth past situations to institute what he calleth favourable comparisons with a reflecting sort of congratulation he will inquire the price of your furniture and insults you with a special commendation of your window curtains he is of opinion that the urn is the more elegant shape but after all there was something more comfortable about the old tea-kettle which you must remember he dare say you must find a great convenience in having a carriage of your own and appealeth to your lady if it is not so inquireth if you have had your arms done on vellum yet and did not know till lately that such and such had been the crest of the family his memory is unseasonable his compliments perverse his talk a trouble his stay pertinacious and when he goeth away you dismiss his chair into a corner as precipitately as possible and feel fairly rid of two nuisances there is a worse evil under the sun and that is a female poor relation you may do something with the other you may pass him off tolerably well but your indigent she-relative is hopeless he is an old humorist you may say and affects to go threadbare his circumstances are better than folks would take them to be you are fond of having a character at your table and truly he is one but in the indications of female poverty there can be no disguise no woman dresses below herself from caprice the truth must out without shuffling she is plainly related to the elves or what does she do at their house she is in all probability your wife's cousin nine times out of ten at least this is the case her garb is something between a gentlewoman and a beggar yet the former evidently predominates she is most provokingly humble and ostentatiously sensible to her inferiority he may require to be repressed sometimes aliquando sufflaminandus erat but there is no raising her you send her soup at dinner and she begs to be helped after the gentleman mr requests the honour of taking wine with her she hesitates between port and madeira and chooses the former because he does she calls the servant sir and insists on not troubling him to hold her plate the housekeeper patronises her the children's governess takes upon her to correct her when she has mistaken the piano for a harpsichord richard amlet esquire in the play is a notable instance of the disadvantages to which this chimerical notion of affinity constituting a claim to acquaintance may subject the spirit of a gentleman a little foolish blood is all that is betwixt him and a lady of great estate his stars are perpetually crossed by the malignant maternity of an old woman who persists in calling him her son dick but she has wherewithal in the end to recompense his indignities and float him again upon the brilliant surface under which it had been her seeming business and pleasure all along to sink him all men besides are not of dick's temperament 
I know an Hamlet in real life who, wanting Dick's buoyancy, sank indeed. Poor W. was of my own standing at Christ's, a fine classic and a youth of promise. If he had a blemish, it was too much pride, but its quality was inoffensive. It was not of the sort which hardens the heart and serves to keep inferiors to distance. It only sought to ward off derogation from itself. It was the principle of self-respect carried as far as it could go without infringing upon that respect, which he would have everyone else equally maintain for himself. He would have you to think alike with him on this topic. Many a quarrel have I had with him when we were rather older boys, and our tallness made us more obnoxious to observation in the blue clothes, because I would not thread the alleys and blind ways of the town with him to elude notice. When we have been out together on a holiday in the streets of this sneering and prying metropolis, W went, saw with these notions, to Oxford, where the dignity and sweetness of a scholar's life, meeting with the alloy of a humble introduction, wrought in him a passionate devotion to the place, and a profound aversion from the society. The servitor's gown, worse than his scholar ray, clung to him with Nessian venom. He thought himself ridiculous in a garb under which Latimer must have walked erect, and in which Hooker, in his young days, possibly flaunted in a vein of no discommendable vanity. In the depth of college shades, or in his lonely chamber, the poor student shrunk from observation. He found shelter among books which insult not, and studies that ask no questions of a youth's finances. He was lord of his library, and seldom cared for looking out beyond his domains. The healing influence of studious pursuits was upon him to soothe and to abstract. He was almost a healthy man when the waywardness of his fate broke out against him with a second and worse malignity. The father of W. had hitherto exercised the humble profession of house-painter at N. near Oxford. A supposed interest with some of the heads of the colleges had now induced him to take up his abode in that city, with the hope of being employed upon some public works which were talked of. From that moment I read in the countenance of the young man the determination which, at length, tore him from academical pursuits for ever. To a person unacquainted with our universities, the distance between the gownsmen and the townsmen, as they are called, the trading part of the latter especially, is carried to an excess that would appear harsh and incredible. The temperament of W.'s father was diametrically the reverse of his own. Old W. was a little, busy, cringing tradesman, who, with his son upon his arm, would stand bowing and scraping cap in hand to anything that wore the semblance of a gown insensible to the winks and opener remonstrances of the young man to whose chamber fellow or equal in standing perhaps he was thus obsequiously and gratuitously ducking such a state of things could not last w must change the air of oxford or be suffocated he chose the former and let the sturdy moralist who strains the point of filial duties as high as they can bear censure the dereliction he cannot estimate the struggle 
I stood with W the last afternoon I ever saw him under the eaves of his paternal dwelling. It was in the fine lane leading from the high street to the back of deleted college where W kept his rooms. He seemed thoughtful and more reconciled. I ventured to rally him, finding him in a better mood, upon a representation of the artist-evangelist, which the old man, whose affairs were beginning to flourish, had caused to be set up in a splendid sort of frame over his really handsome shop, either as a token of prosperity or a badge of gratitude to his saint. W looked up at the luke and, like Satan, knew his mounted sign and fled. A letter on his father's table the next morning announced that he had accepted a commission in a regiment about to embark for Portugal. He was among the first who perished before the walls of St. Sebastian. I do not know how, upon a subject which I began with treating half seriously, I should have fallen upon a recital so eminently painful, but this theme of poor relationship is replete with so much matter for tragic as well as comic associations, that it is difficult to keep the account distinct without blending. The earliest impressions which I received on this matter are certainly not attended with anything painful or very humiliating in the recalling. At my father's table, no very splendid one, was to be found every Saturday the mysterious figure of an aged gentleman, clothed in neat black, of a sad yet comely appearance. His deportment was the essence of gravity, his words few or none, and I was not to make a noise in his presence. I had little inclination to have done so, for my cue was to admire in silence. A particular elbow-chair was appropriated to him, which was in no case to be violated. A peculiar sort of sweet pudding, which appeared on no other occasion, distinguished the days of his coming. I used to think him a prodigiously rich man. All I could make out of him was that he and my father had been schoolfellows a world ago at Lincoln, and that he had come from the Mint. The Mint I knew to be a place where all the money was coined, and I thought he was the owner of all that money. Awful ideas of the tower twined themselves about his presence. He seemed above human infirmities and passions. A sort of melancholy grandeur invested him. From some inexplicable doom, I fancied him obliged to go about in an eternal suit of mourning, a captive, a stately being, let out of the tower on Saturdays. Often have I wondered at the temerity of my father, who, in spite of an habitual general respect which we all in common manifested towards him, would venture now and then to stand up against him in some argument touching their youthful days. The houses of the ancient city of Lincoln are divided, as most of my readers know, between the dwellers on the hill and in the valley. This marked distinction formed an obvious division between the boys who lived above however brought together in a common school, and the boys whose paternal residence was on the plain, a sufficient cause of hostility in the code of these young Groteuses. My father had been a leading mountaineer, and would still maintain the general superiority in skill and hardihood of the above boys. 
his own faction, over the below boys, so were they called, of which party his contemporary had been a chieftain. Many and hot were the skirmishes on this topic, the only one upon which the old gentleman was ever brought out, and bad blood bred, even sometimes almost to the recommencement, so I expected, of actual hostilities. But my father, who scorned to insist upon advantages, generally contrived to turn the conversation upon some adroit by-commendation of the old minster, in the general preference of which, before all other cathedrals in the island, the dweller on the hill and the plain-born could meet on a conciliating level and lay down their less important differences. Once only I saw the old gentleman really ruffled, and I remembered with anguish the thought that came over me, Perhaps he will never come here again. He had been pressed to take another plate of the viand, which I have already mentioned as the indispensable concomitant of his visits. He had refused, with a resistance amounting to rigour, when my aunt, an old Lincolnian, who had something of this in common with my cousin Bridget, that she would sometimes press civility out of season, uttered the following memorable application— do take another slice, Mr. Billet, for you do not get pudding every day. The old gentleman said nothing at the time, but he took occasion in the course of the evening, when some argument had intervened between them, to utter with an emphasis which chilled the company, and which chills me now as I write it, Woman, you are superannuated. John Billet did not survive long after the digesting of this affront, but he survived long enough to assure me that peace was actually restored, and if I remember aright, another pudding was discreetly substituted in the place of that which had occasioned the offence. He died at the Mint, anno 1781, where he had long held what he accounted a comfortable independence, and with five pounds, fourteen shillings, and a penny, which were found in his escrutoire after his decease, left the world, blessing God that he had enough to bury him, and that he had never been obliged to any man for a sixpence. This was a poor relation. End of section 31